Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Welcome to Sydney Ideas. This is the University of Sydney's Public Talks program. My name is Penella Conabone. I'm the head of programming for Sydney Ideas, and thank you so much for joining us. Before we begin proceedings, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all meet where we work and, of course, where we share ideas, and that is wherever you happen to be joining us online today. Uh, in particular, I pay um, my respects and acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge and our teaching and our, our learning, also our research practices within the university, may we also pay respects to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So today we are hearing from a range of experts to consider what the roadmap to reopening is going to look like. It's drawing on the work of the Open Society Common Purpose Task Force that's hosted here at the University of Sydney. To kick off uh, today's conversation, though, it is now my pleasure to welcome Mark Rigotti, who is the chair of the Open Society Common Purpose Task Force. He is a partner and a senior advisor at Herbert Smith Freehills, where he is the immediate past CEO. Mark is going to say a couple of words of introduction and then welcome our first guests. So thank you, Mark. Over to you. Thank you very much, Fenella, and good evening, everyone. It's great to be joining you. I am the chair of the Open Society Common Purpose Task Force, which is an independent task force that was established in late 2020 in response to the COVID pandemic to unpack how the pandemic is not only an enormous health challenge, but also a societal one. Members come from a broad range of sectors and include the CEOs of the Law Council of Australia, PwC Australia, Settlement Services International, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and many academics from the University of Sydney. Our report, A Roadmap to Reopening, was released earlier in this year in May and it explored how Australia can re-engage with the world in the era of COVID-19, and also how Australia can strengthen its societal foundations as it does so. It offers a psychological runway as we build the path to reopening. All links are on the Sydney Ideas website. Well, Monday this week saw the end of the lockdown in Sydney where I'm located, a lockdown that lasted more than 100 days. Schools have been shut, businesses closed, but, with the easing of restrictions this week, particularly for those that are vaccinated, we hope that the, today's conversation will help each of us individually better understand what reopening means and what the next phase of the pandemic will be, both from a health and a political perspective. Dr. Luara Faridasili is our moderator for today. She'll begin with a conversation featuring Dr. Nick Coatsworth and Professor Mark Steers. Following this, she'll moderate a panel with epidemiologist Professor Catherine Bennett, paediatrician and epidemiologist Professor Fiona Russell, and child and youth mental health expert Professor Adam Gustella from the Brain and Mind Centre. Thank you, and please welcome Dr Lura. Thank you, Mark, for introduction, and good evening, everyone. I am Dr Luara Fahasioli, Senior Lecturer in Political Philosophy here at the University of Sydney. It's a real pleasure to be part of this event. So today we're going to ask, what will living with COVID look like now that we are reopening our state and starting this journey of living with the virus circulating in our community? I would now like to welcome my first two guests, uh, Dr. Nick 
Cotsworth was one of Australia's deputy uh, chief medical officers. He's an infectious disease physician, a respiratory physician, a practitioner of disaster and humanitarian medicine, and an expert on high-level health administration. He's also the executive director of the medical services group at Canberra Health Services. And Professor Mark Steer is a political theorist. He's, di he's the director of Sydney Policy Lab. And prior to this, he was a professor of political theory at the University of Oxford. And he also worked as a chief speechwriter to the British Labour Party under the leadership of Ed Miliband. Welcome, Nick and Mark. Thank you, Luara. <laughs> Nick, to you first. We have a very good sense of the freedoms available to the vaccinated and the expectations are placed on the citizenry for the near future. But I think uh, many people are not so confident about the risks involved in this next phase. So let's start with children. What are the risks to children? Will reopening be too risky for them? I think the first thing to say, Luara, is that we can understand how uh, concerning uh, this must be for our community because we've gone from an essential position of uh, zero COVID, which effectively became a zero tolerance for COVID cases, and in some case, parts of the country it still is, uh, to a situation where we are going to have this respiratory virus in our communities and certainly for the three states that are affected, New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria, that is the that is the case now. But it's important that we recognise where the risks are significant and where the risks are not so significant. And I think kids are a good place to start. And there are uh, people on this Sydney Ideas episode who are more qualified than me to talk about uh, COVID-19 in kids. But if I can give you my perspective, and, and that is that we know from the Australian experience Experience and the international experience, the COVID-19 is overwhelmingly a mild disease in under 12-year-old under children. That to detect a positive vaccine effect is going to be extraordinarily difficult uh, because the disease is so mild already. And so the next big debates around, you know, whether we should be closing schools or just closing classes or closing year groups or not closing anything at all with single cases of COVID-19, these are where the debates are going to be and there's going to be a strong debate about whether under 12s uh, should be vaccinated. But we need to frame debates with the correct risk interpretation and certainly that's something that maybe we haven't been so good at doing. We've, we've overplayed a lot of risks where they haven't been as significant and uh, children is certainly one of those. So I wanted to comfort everybody who's got kids like I do under 12, um, that my view is that it is safe for us to open up and have those children back at school. Great. And how about the impact on the health system? Do you think, for example, the health system here in New South Wales is ready for this next phase? By contrast, this is where we do have to be very careful. And I think every jurisdiction realises that. Uh, from what I've seen, though, I wanted to let people know that I've worked on COVID wards in, in the past month. I've seen a different disease to the one that's in 2020. Well, how can that be? Um, we keep You keep telling us, Nick, that the Delta variant is no different in terms of disease severity, et cetera, et cetera, and it's not. So what's changed? What's changed is that in hospitals, we are much more comfortable in dealing with COVID-19. We're much more confident with our procedures. What's changed is that 
aside from uh, people who are vaccinated who are in a much, much better position. This is now largely a disease, a severe disease of the unvaccinated. Of course, vaccinated people can still get COVID-19. But we have a range of other treatments as well. Um, we have a new monoclonal antibody. This is a drug called citrovimab that if you give it within the first five days of symptoms to an unvaccinated individual, has a significant reduction in the incidence of ICU admission, intensive care admission or death. And we've rolled out that to 70 patients here in the ACT and only one of those has gone on to be hospitalised afterwards. So that's great news. So I just wanted to emphasise that whilst we have to look at the capacity issues with our health system, that's the most important thing. And the most important way to assess that is not by looking at the daily cases. They are now being decoupled uh, from hospitalisations and intensive care admissions. Both those things are going to be the important measures going forward. And fortunately, as we know in New South Wales, those curves have now started to come down again. And when it comes to looking forward, which country or countries do you think we should be emulating here in New South Wales now? We were the envy of the world last year, but now which country do you think we should be looking at? Oh, look, I, I still think in a lot of ways Australia's out in front. Maybe we're not like out in front like Ian Thorpe used to be in the 1500 metres of the Olympics, but we're still out in front. And, and we need to acknowledge that the community's done an amazing job. I, th I think it's you've got to get lessons from all around the world and temper those lessons and analogies with the fact that we are different a different society. And even within Australian communities, COVID is behaving differently, uh, depending on which part of your community is infected. What's the density of your population? How many of um, your people can spend time outside? There's so many factors, Luara. And one of the things that frustrates me a lot is that when you see people comparing, um, particularly people who paint a more um, gloom and doom scenario, um, trying to compare Australia with, with countries where there are manifestly different policies and manifestly um, different outcomes of COVID-19. And one of the big ones at the moment is people will point you towards the effect of COVID-19 in children in, and uh, ho horrible numbers uh, that are seeming to appear in the United States, but pointing to states where vaccination rates amongst the adult population are extraordinarily low. But using that analogy to justify certain policies amongst our children in Australia. And so I just make that um, cautious point that it's very important to you know, compare where it's necessary, beware of the power of analogy, um, question it, and ultimately collect our own data. Great. So um, let's bring Mark to the discussion. Mark, uh, let's move to, let's tease out the connection between public health and politics. Do you think that we're seeing a more exacerbated or different form of uh, political polarization as a result of COVID? Uh, and what effects do you think this uh, polarization around public health has had or will have on the health of our democracy? Yeah, thank you so much, Laura, and thanks um, uh, for being here. And it's great to be in a discussion with uh, Nick, and thanks to Nick for all of his work during the pandemic. I mean, I think the, the brute truth here is that the pandemic has been politicised and polarised right from the start. Um, and we've heard an awful lot, of course, about following the science when most politicians most of the time, sadly, have done what they always do, which is that they've followed the focus groups or they've followed the electoral polling. You know, the primary instinct of most elected politicians 
tradition still, not just here in Australia, but around the world, is to get re-elected and to stay in front of their opposition parties. And the pandemic has been no different from that. You know, there have been heroic uh, policy successes, um, both here in Australia and elsewhere, um, but they have been tempered always by the fact that people, you know, politicians do politics. That's in, in their deep in their DNA. Um, and, you know, that, that, as I say, has been there right from the start. I, I think you see an intensity to it now because politicians are all trying to work out what's the likely position that we're going to have in two months, three months, four months' time. I mean, they, they all think of this as, you know, if not the full end game of the pandemic, then definitely a wholly different stage. And they're not quite sure what the public is looking for, what kind of reassurances uh, the public needs, uh, and what's going to get them ahead. Um, and I think, you know, to come to your question of polarization, I mean, it, it, it's an open question, I think, about whether what we'll get is a new consensus you know, behind opening up and the kind of policies that we've seen here, the new premier in New South Wales um, adopt, or whether we will see a sort of deep divide emerge between those people who are happy to open up and those people who are much more anxious and would prefer to stay locked down. You know, my personal instinct at the moment is that the opinion polling here in Australia is pretty strong for opening up, and we're seeing some of the you know the previous advocates of lockdown move to a position which is more comfortable with opening. So at the moment, you know the politicians like Dominic Perrottet uh, have an advantage, I think, electorally. Um, but you know, definitely all to play for, and and the politics could well take you know many twists and turns before we fully get out of the pandemic yet. Yeah, I might just add something there, Luara, which is that we, we can't underestimate the politics of science here. And I think that um, a lot of time science and scientists has been framed as somehow above this and able to provide completely objective evidence. And I think what we've actually seen is, is the um, positioning of certain um, scientists or infectious disease positions or, or physicians or advocates be behind certain political positions. And, and, and so we can't escape critique as the medical profession and the scientific community for contributing to that polarisation in the debate. And I think the, the way out of that, though, is to capture something that Mark just said, which is there are, that fear is a powerful emotion. And fear was used by a lot of people, myself included, um, and it was very scary in 2020. So to try and pivot the community away from that sort of fear response to the optimistic response is actually a really, really hard thing to do. But I think all of us in the scientific community have a responsibility to do that. And particularly when we have uh, those of us have overestimated effects um, on a fairly consistent basis, it's important to come take that back and explain, um, well, probably first acknowledge when people have been, when you've been wrong. That's a really important thing to do, and I'm not sure um, that uh, we're entirely good at it as, as the scientific community. So let's stay on this topic because, as you mentioned, there has been, uh, you know, alarmist rhetoric from some quarters. And in a way, you can see why the media would amplify those voices. Um, and maybe those voices made more sense last year, and now it's time, time for them to reassess some of their positions. But um, how do we now move to discussions that are more nuanced and balanced around things like, like we just mentioned with two children or um, 
that, you know, the risks associated with, uh, say, the AstraZeneca vaccine or the risks of contracting COVID when we're no longer in lockdown. So basically, how do we move away from this more alarmist rhetoric around COVID that has become so prominent in Australia and now it's uh, not letting us move at the right speed, or at least not, not let everyone be at the right mindset for this next phase. I, mean, I, I think, think that's, a, again, it's a crucial <laughs> We were both so keen to jump in there. You go first, Mark. <laughs> it's a crucial question, Laura. I mean, my, my instinct, first of all, is that the, one of the reasons there's been such a sort of frenzied debate around COVID in all the ways that you just described is because it's the only thing we've been allowed to debate for the last 18, 19 months. I mean, if you think about how the political news cycle usually works, a topic or an issue will have three days most as the headline story. And then you move on to the next debate. So you'll be talking about education one minute and the economy the next minute and some local issue the next minute and then a foreign policy issue the next. Whereas we've all been consumed with COVID and journalists, therefore, uh, you know, and politicians, and as Nick was saying, you know, health experts all try and make this as exciting as they possibly can. And often the doom and the gloom is the way that they get that media attention. My instinct from looking elsewhere around the world is you get a more measured COVID debate when it finds itself situated in other debates. You know, so it's very important that we begin to think about mental health, unemployment, you know, sort of the nature of our economy. It's great to see people talking about environment and climate change issues again, not turning away from COVID and pretending the pandemic doesn't exist. You know, no one's suggesting that we pretend it's not there, but situating it within a broader package of concerns that we all actually have as citizens of society today. So my encouragement for politicians and for journalists and for medics at the moment is to try to place COVID in a broader context than we've been able to do during the pandemic up until this point. I think one of the issues from my perspective is that there's there's been this um, false dichotomy created between uh, health, which is represented by um, as fewer COVID cases as possible. I, I would hasten to add that is not health. Um, and the economy on the other side, by which you have to make these binary decisions that if you, you if you open up, you're suddenly going to have um, thousands of cases. And I am noting um the, with deep respect, some of the comments that are coming in on, on the chat at the moment. One of them in particular has referenced um, the number of deaths in New South Wales and attributing those to Liberal National Party policies. Now, can I just clarify very clearly that we will not reach the number of COVID deaths in 2021 as we had influenza deaths in, 11, in 2017, which was 1,126. But no one's turning around and blaming the Liberal National Party for the 27 flu um, pandemic. And, you know, this is something that I have personally suffered. The only political party I've been a member of has been the ALP. I was the former president of a major um, multinational charity, um, Doctors Without Borders, in, in, in Australia. I'm not from the right side of politics, and yet um, I, I think one of the distortions of this, but, and, and you have to put the responsibility here on members of what we would call the progressive left in this, in this society, Some, many of whom would um, fit into that category, people listening today, um, but to have falsely dichotomized that. And then what's happened is those voices that Mark 
thinks we should have parity, that I think should have parity. The voices of teachers, the voices of mental health experts, the voices of human rights experts. I mean, what is the definition of human rights within a public health emergency? These are the debates that we didn't have, but are important to now have and try and get ourselves away from that false dichotomy. There's no one in Australia who is looking for a Boris Johnson type open up straight away approach. Everything you see at the moment is measured and cautious and with the capacity of the health system in mind. All right. Well, let's wrap up our discussion. That has been so interesting, but looking forward, not so much to the short term, but perhaps 10, 20, 30 years from now, are we better prepared for future pandemics, both in terms of the policy settings we have, but also in terms of the politics around? What do you think? Have we learned important lessons? As uh, a yeah, in, look, indisputably, the answer is yes. We And again, I refer to Ian Thorpe. We might not be that far ahead as we were in 2020, but I still think we're world leaders in this and, and we have learned a lot. And I think uh, one, of the, one of the key learnings, I think, is um, that when... We uh, when we do this again, um, we need to have a, a very significant focus on the balance between um, public health um, and liberal democratic rights. Um, and in particular, we need to understand um, that when we make a particular policy setting, any policy setting is going to involve some winners, some losers, some overreach. Um, but that we have to be very attuned as policymakers and public health leaders that when we have situations where people can't visit funerals or the story today or yesterday of the six-year-old with cerebral palsy who's in a quarantine hotel um, in New South Wales waiting to get to Queensland, that is a signal that our policy settings have over, overreached and, and we need to be more adept and adaptable at pulling those back. Um, and the problem is when you over-regulate, you create so much burden of regulation that you have no flexibility to deal with the cases that matter like that one. Yeah, I think Nick's, again, put his finger on some incredibly important points there. I mean, the only one I would add is that we need to remember that pandemics are global by definition. And, you know, this pandemic hit at exactly the wrong point in global politics when you had Donald Trump as the president of the United States, Boris Johnson as the prime minister of the UK, both reckless, um, but most importantly, nationalistic and narrowly focused on their own concerns. And as a result, we didn't have a, a really proper internationalized response to what is fundamentally an international issue. And, you know, if I'm taking one learning from Australia, um, you know, we closed the borders uh, and in a way that worked, it kept case numbers much lower than they would have been otherwise. But in another way, it didn't work, which it made us think that we could somehow deal with this issue, this issue ourselves, you know, uh, a little hermit island separated off from the world could somehow beat um, the pandemic and we can't. So next time we go into a situation like this, I hope that we'll have global leaders who are able to take a more globalized perspective and that we'll all remember our international obligations as well as our duties to our fellow citizens. Thank you so much, Nick and Mark. It's been great to discuss these important issues with you. And to our, our audience uh, have joined us today, Thank you for joining this event. It's great to have your company. For more information about our speakers tonight and to access some of uh, the resources, all the links are on the Sydney Ideas website, which you'll add to the chat now. Also a reminder that we're taking your questions on Slido. So if you'd like to ask a question, please go to slido.com and use the code 
the code Sydney idea. So we'll come to your questions uh, later in the, in the hour. Uh, and now the second half of our, our event, a panel examining what we must do better in this next phase um, with three health experts to share their insights. First, Professor Catherine Bennett. She's the Dickens Chair in Epidemiology within Dickens Institute for Health Transformation. She's a leading researcher and teacher in public health with a specific interest in infectious disease epidemiology and community transmission. Also joining us today, Professor Fiona Russell is a pediatrician, epidemiologist, and translation researcher. She's director of the Child and Adolescent Health PhD program in the Department of Pediatri Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne, and is a member of the WHO Collaborating Center for Child and Neonatal Health Research and Training, and group leader for the Asia-Pacific Health Research at the Murdoch Children's Research Institution. And last but not least, Professor Adam Guastella is the Michael Crouch Chair in Child and Youth Mental Health. His position is based both at the University of Sydney and at the Sydney Children's Hospital at uh, Westmead and uh, the Brain Mind Center here at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Catherine, Fiona, and Adam. Thanks for having us. Hi, Catherine, to you first. I think you have calmed many people's nerves uh, this week with a great piece at the Sydney Morning Herald, where you put forward what I would describe as a moderately optimistic view of what life will look like for us. But the critics might say, we're opening up too early. You know, we've read, many of us have read statements such as sacrificing the vulnerable at the altar of freedom. What is, what's your response? Uh, to those criticisms? I think it is interesting that there was a national plan set and as we got closer to those benchmarks, particularly the vaccination benchmarks, people became more spooked by it. You know, looking at some of the things we were learning were actually a bit more worrying about Delta, for example, and um, and the ability for the vaccines to, to reduce um, transmission, for example. But other things were actually good news, and often the good news didn't kind of make it into those conversations. So we learnt from the National Centre for Immunisation Research that actually children weren't so good at sharing it, particularly amongst children, even if they were infected. And so it was about trying to balance all the information coming in and looking at where we stood on the plan. And and I think that's that's exactly why you have a plan, so that you put the best information together, you actually update it if you need to. But at the same time, we knew there was, um, in fact, I think it was the Victorian Premier described it as a, um, a corridor. You kind of have to go through the or a gateway to get to the next part. And it was by definition going to include some uncertainty. And I, I, I guess I would have thought of all the things we've learned, we've learned uncertainty. We've learned how to live with that actually for this last period. But this step really highlights how polarised the community has become. And, and I think you know, Nick talked about this earlier around the um, scientists also becoming quite polarised in some areas. And I think if anything, if I describe my own um, time over these 18 months, it's been about trying to sit with the data, which is usually in the middle. It's not extreme about opening up now. We, we've got to, can't just put cost of, the, of um, health against everything else. But equally, it's it's not about staying locked down forever. It's trying to find that nuance, to try and learn what we can from our own data 
and and to navigate this in a safe way. And now that's all we still can do. That's the only way you bring people in from both sides, the people who are frustrated and need to see us progressing towards something more normalised. But also we have to do this in a way that acknowledges the anxiety that now sits with a large part of the community. So I think encouraging these conversations in the middle ground, addressing people's fears, talking about what it's going to look like. But importantly, I think what I've tried to put in in my vision statements as an epidemiologist about these next few months, it's also saying we're not going to have surprises. We'll be able to see how it's working. And we're not committing to something that we can't adapt as we go. In fact, we should adapt as we go. And that it's not what we planned six months ago could be terribly wrong and we're all going to suffer for it. It's basically saying we're now learning from each other as we go and we use this week's information to form next week's decisions if we need to moderate it. And hopefully that reassures people that we're not over committing to freedom, you know, um, but at the same time we're we're doing this in an evidence-based way and you have to pull away from those polarised views and now focus on the job at hand because there's so much going on in this space at the moment. Fiona, can I bring you to the discussion? What do you think? Should we be feeling moderately optimistic or do you have a different view on this? Oh, look, I I think we should be absolutely moderately optimistic. We, you know, otherwise there's no point, I think. You know, we've been through so much and, you know, Victoria's got the world record now of lockdown and do we really want to live like this forever? I don't think so. So it, I think we, you know, we can look towards, you know, I work in global health. That's my area of work, what I've been doing for two decades. So I always see what's going on in other countries and I track them. And because we're, you know, as, as Nick has said, we're sort of maybe... Um, we're kind of ahead, but for the long haul, perhaps for, to some degree, um, we can look at other countries and what's been going on in them um, before, that are, are kind of ahead and experiencing things ahead of us. And so when it comes to schools, we can have a lot of confidence about um, things going ahead and, and, and being confident that, uh, you know, we will certainly see lots of infections, there will be lots of outbreaks, but the kids by and large are going to be absolutely fine. We knew that last year, in fact. I mean, we knew that we had to keep proving it. We absolutely knew that last year, except the alternative viewpoints, you know, got the media and schools were shut and it, it should have never, it should have never actually happened. I mean, initially we thought, oh, we have to protect the children. We thought it was like flu. Um, and and so we we had to protect and close everything up and do it to, you know, to protect the children from getting severe illness. But it became very clear very early on that the children were were spared or, or the worst, worst of it. However, we kept the kids, you know, the schools closed in Victoria. And the reason for that was because it was thought that they were going to be infecting their grandparents uh, who were at, at that time at risk of uh, um, the most severe disease and severe outcomes. And so it was the children's rights and their learning opportunities, their mental health, their whole childhood was being put on hold to protect their grandparents and older people with comorbidities. However, we knew, we knew very early on from about August at least that that wasn't actually the case, that schools were contributing very little. Um, we did the Victorian um, analysis of all the data that showed that with uh, testing, tracing and isolation, you could contain these things. And by and large, it's what's happening in the community that was filling over, you know, spilling over into the schools by and large. We, you know, we, we put together a plan, but, you know, that was just sort of shelved and nothing 
nothing happened. And so, unfortunately, um, then Delta came along, of course, and that's changed everything enormously. So, again, we had to have a look and see, okay, what's happening with the, with the children? And, again, we've got good, pretty good data now to show that it's not more severe. I mean, certainly it's more common. It's more transmissible. Um, that uh, data that uh, um, Catherine had mentioned from Sydney, um, we knew that last year. I mean, we knew that it was teacher's teachers, teacher to child, and very uncommon, you know, from child to child. That, that occurs and that's why outbreaks do occur and we expect them to happen when we open up. But again, we need to really learn from this experience um, going forward. So when children do go back, um, they will mostly get infected by and large. We have got mitigation measures in place to do as much as we can to prevent that and prevent children potentially taking it home. But that's why it's so important that parents and teachers get uh, vaccinated so you know the adults don't get sick but by and large it's a very mild infection in children and and very uncommon particularly for the primary schoolers who aren't vaccinated to end up in any strife i, I think many parents have you know uh, received information you know information similar to what you just said and thought okay i'm going to uh, calm my nerves and think about all the things that my children are missing out and send them to school but I think there's still some parents who, you know, despite having very healthy children, are very nervous about sending their children to school. And it's almost like we need politicians and not only also uh, public health experts, but maybe experts in other areas and not only um, mental health experts, but also philosophers and other people to point out that the children are missing out on the goods of childhood, right? It's not just about mm-hmm. learning. When you are home, yes, you can learn. But when you go to school, you get to learn in a carefree way. You get to learn the civic virtues that will be so important later on. You get to have a bit of a normal life. And, you know, childhood is very short. It's only, you know, 10 years. Um, So do you think we need more leadership for our politicians here to say enough is enough? Children have their... So we've imposed so much cost on them. It's It's now time to really try and give their childhood back. Yes, look, you're absolutely right, Noara. It's been, um, you know, I can really understand the anxiety amongst parents. It's certainly completely understandable and um, it's new territory. It's new territory for everybody. We haven't experienced anything like this before. We've been locked up while Delta's out there in community and all of a sudden we're going to be let loose and we'll be seeing lots of infections and our children will get coughs and colds and and uncommonly we'll end up in hospital, although that will that will happen, but it'll be, you know, very uncommon. So it's a new area um, for us. But we have to, again, you know, look to see what's happened overseas. So Denmark, for example, probably one of the most successful countries that's managed COVID, they started their plan back in about February. And so they opened up, um, you know, the few grades in primary school in February when there was only 4% of people vaccinated. And the following month, they opened up all the classes and and they continued that, in whole, you know, the whole year. So they haven't closed them again except for, for, um, uh, for summer holidays and things. So, and they've been doing absolutely fine. And now they're one of the best. They've, you know, the kids are back at school now. They're not wearing any masks. There's no social distancing. In fact, there's virtually no restrictions. And so we can look forward to that, I would hope, um, next year and so those um you know it takes a you know it really takes a village to raise a child and and so school is such an important part of of a child's life and 
it's been very challenging for parents, particularly those in Victoria, um, to to manage, you know, all the uncertainty for COVID, their businesses, their their life, their work, and then to be homeschooling as well, and and to see the deterioration in their children, which is, you know, which has just been um, devastating. In fact, in terms of the mental health impacts and the and the and the and the and the loss of social skills and the the skills of of what children need, they need face to face to be able to learn and develop. So, um, yes, it's. I think it's. Uh, it's parents will make those decisions. I hope based on you know their, their what's best for their child. You know in terms of the risk of infection, but so how so important it is to get back and play and have some fun face to face and be and be a child. Adam, can I bring you here because you're doing a lot of uh, really important work in the space by presenting the webinar series, keeping the kids in mind. What do you think are the more serious mental health impacts that we need to attend to in this next phase of the pandemic, especially for young people? Well, I think the uh, to understand where we're going, we've got to understand where we're coming from. And the impact of lockdowns on mental health and the indirect impact of, men, of lockdowns on mental health has not been evenly distributed across the population. You know, there are some populations of children, whether they're from vulnerable backgrounds with neurodiverse needs or different communities with less uh, financial supports or uh, with different housing arrangements that have not had the same um, experiences of lockdown as others. And their access to healthcare, to mental health care, to other supports has not been there. And so this accumulation of impact has had a, a negative impact on uh, many of those children and families. And so in terms of moving out of lockdown, we need to make sure that we have the supports in place or to build those supports that haven't been there for the communities that need it and to prioritise those communities in integration. I mean, everyone is going to have anxiety and that's normal given particularly what Nick's talked about in terms of the messaging that's come from COVID as well as the changes and the loss of jobs and financial success for many families. But this transition is, has to be built on hope and, and a sense of control and we will see families move into that space and we predict succeed. And as people succeed and as people see others succeed, the anxiety will um, reduce. Um, but it's also true that these mental health effects that have occurred will not just quickly disappear for some families. Some of those families will experience extended mental health effects that will need support. And I was interested to see the child and mental health mental health well-being strategy released um, just yesterday, which we had some involvement in. And the critical need for integrated supports for families is going to be crucial during this time. So this strategy is, a, I take it, a very important first step. Is there anything missing? Is there anything else that politicians really need to attend to at this stage? Well, you know, there's lots of things recommended in that strategy, which I completely agree with, and there needs to be investment behind it to provide support. Things like access to care, increased training for um, healthcare professionals, provide services to the community, increased access in schools during this time have become a community hub for the community. So there will need to be increased support, particularly for schools. And I note the Victorian announcements regarding uh, increased supports for counsellors, um, but we need those sorts of responses nationally. 
Great. Well, let's move to a final question before we take the questions from our audience. Uh, let's come back to you, Catherine. Other countries are opening up or have already opened up fully. How practical and desirable um, is it for Australia to stay close to non-citizens and just bring back citizens who are abroad? And also how practical and desirable it is for states like uh, Queensland and Western Australia to stay closed? Yeah, I think it's interesting that we're in different places now, even within Australia. It's, it's um, you know, some of us were talking last year already about, and many of the people associated with this webinar, about the need to have those big conversations about how we open up, how we bring back things into balance. Um, but the, no one was really ready for it. It was really quite interesting. And one of the questions that that kept stopping that conversation was, how many deaths are we willing to tolerate? And then it got too hard and people walked away from the conversation. And I'd always thought that was a conversation that wasn't happening in other parts of the world. It didn't typically happen here. When we have a disease, you you try and decide how much you can invest to reduce the impact of that disease. You're not living in this belief that you can live without the disease with all these other extreme measures in place. So the... Uh, the truth in, in New South Wales and Victoria, ACT, and of course, New Zealand, um, is that the virus is here. And once Delta is embedded in the community, it's not going away. So it is about bringing it under control. And I just want to echo Adam's words. You know, we have to move to hope and control away from fear and uncertainty. And that's definitely been my mantra for some time now. And trying to build that sense of the vaccines as part of that control. But our international border was an important part of the control initially. But I felt that that's completely shifted as well. And again, as Nick said earlier on, some of the decisions being made, including those around the border about people coming to Australia and not being allowed to sit with their parent as they died because there was some state rule about something and this was a fully vaccinated person willing to you know, hire their own jet and do all those things very safely. We'd lost we'd lost sight of what we were on about here. We'd, we'd applied these rules to the letter in a way that became inhumane. Now we're in a situation where arguably someone fully vaccinated coming on shore, coming home out of those tens of thousands of people still stuck overseas, there isn't an argument in Melbourne and, and New South Wales to keep those people held back. We use home quarantine all the time for people who are actually have the virus in the community when we have these big outbreaks, let alone their primary contacts. The risk in someone from overseas is less than half a percent of them being positive and, in fact, only a very small percentage of cases were in fully vaccinated return travellers. So we must do that. We must do that now. That's just, you know, an, a no-brainer. Looking ahead, I think we've, we've still got a lot of work to do with those people looking to come to Australia for good reason, particularly, you know, I declare my bias, but university students um, wishing to come back and, and be part of our vibrant university um, education programs, but also workers and a whole lot of others where we're now dealing with the issues around not having the, um, the expertise we need for some of our industries. So I think it's right to do it in steps. But at the end of the day, it's a levy, you know, the wall is in the middle and whether that's overseas and we say, well, there's, we might still have some high risk countries, you might screen people in a different way, we might still want to quarantine people for a while if they're not vaccinated or if they're carrying a variant that we're not sure about, it's on the, the, the concern list. But equally, we have to then look at our internal borders. And the more New South Wales and Victoria ACT become externally focused as we open up our international borders, the, you know, we can't lose sight of that conversation and 
and and the decisions that have to be made internally because there have been too many families separated for too long. And I'm hoping that, again, as others have said, as they watch what's happening in New South Wales and Victoria, as they learn about the fact you can live with the virus and be in control, that that will actually motivate them. At the moment, we're in the pool. We're swimming with the virus. We're trying to bring it under control as we get our vaccine levels up to that safe level that protects our ICU and hospitals and our people. The other states are kind of learning to swim, standing beside the swimming, an empty swimming pool. But they can look at us. You know, we all watch the Olympics. We all get motivated. We all think we can swim really well at the end of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, they are learning from us. And this experience in the East Coast is going to benefit the whole country. And hopefully that's going to be not just about, you know, what they need to have in place for vaccination levels and the way they're going to tailor their contact tracing to suit the new world that we're learning about from New South Wales and Victoria. All of those things will shift. They can learn that. But hopefully it's that psychological approach to the virus that we start to normalise it, we start to put it in the suite of important infectious diseases we have to manage, but not ones that every member of the community has to manage every day. Great. This has been so great. Let's now move to the questions from our audience. Let's have a look at the top questions that have received uh, most attention. Um, so would Australia have been better off with a national strategy? Do we need to have a national strategy? Do we really need to be more forceful um, when it comes to bringing the other states to the, join in, in a way that's more meaningful in that we're all in the same swimming pool, to use your, your analogy, Catherine? Luara, can I can I just make a quick comment um, on that? Uh, yes. Very quick, because I know we'll all have, have a view. I, I think um, I think we did start with a with a national approach. I think the Australian Health Protection Principle Committee and the states, um, when there was a uniform wave across the uh, country in in March of 2020, we actually we actually did have that. I think the only way we could get that back in a future pandemic is to for and this is um, this might even get me in trouble, but for first ministers and health ministers to actually allow their chief health officers to speak um, uh, at the table of the AHPPC um, freely and frankly, and um, then take that advice back as consensus of advice of the AHPPC, the Australian Health Protection Principle Committee, which I can tell you fractured around about um, July of uh, 2020 in terms of that um, uh, consistency of, of advice. So the AHPPC um, needs to be strengthened again. Um, make the AHPPC great again. That's what I would say. Fiona, Adam and Catherine, any thoughts on, on this well, one? Well, just, just to add to what Nick said, I actually think from a public health perspective that consistency is everything. You know, we're saying what we're doing is evidence-based and yet we're doing different things. And then that questions that whole business of, of how the evidence is, is driving those decisions. And that's incredibly important for public health confidence. And no matter which way you look at this from a public health perspective, it's the behaviours of the individuals, whether they get tested, whether they do isolate, whether they wear their mask, all of those things are what matters most. And so you lose control of that if you start to create this... Um, sort of a debate nationally that, that was exacerbated by some of the commentators as well, I think, that then confuses this whole issue about what's evidence-based. So I absolutely think you you should put all your best 
brains together. And, and there's a lot of talk about having something like not a CDC per se, but actually having an independent group of people, independent of government, but that can support the states, the shows, the everybody. And you just can then bring that together virtually quite quickly in a crisis. So it's the AHPPC, you know, on steroids. That's not a good analogy, but, you know, and, and I agree. I think, you know, working off that model is the way to go and it will matter right the way through to how people even perceive that we know what we're doing and that they should buy into it. It would make everything much more effective. Let's move to the second question in our list because I, I really love that question. Um, do we think that COVID has permanently changed our society for better or worse and how can we adapt to that? Has there been any permanent change that will become very salient to us as we move to this next phase? Well, I'll just go quickly first. As an infectious disease epidemiologist, you kind of want everyone to just not go to work if they have symptoms, all those little things that actually will make a difference to everyone's life. And I think a lot of us have got used to not having a cold for at least one winter season and, and what's possible. So I do think there's been an awareness of infectious diseases that we'd forgotten about. And we've built society now, particularly in Australia, in the big cities, that's a microbe heaven. And I think we've also learned that that has its weaknesses as well, whether you're in a public housing tower or quite an affluent tower, but with shared facilities, you know, all those things, we've actually created some challenges for ourselves. So I think it has given us pause to really rethink how we live, how we live safely, particularly in the face of infectious diseases. And I do think some of that will carry forward. I think we've We've changed in so many ways as academics, the whole research community, um, the politicisation of all of this, you know, and the weaponization actually, of epidemiology a lot of the time. Some of these things are good, some of these are bad, but I actually think all perturbation is good if you learn from it and move ahead, taking advantage of the things that actually maybe we've hung on to but we could do better. Can I? Um, oh, sorry, Fiona, you go first. Yeah, I'd like to just say something because I, you know, I'm normally an optimistic person, but I'm afraid in this regard, I think I'm quite pessimistic. Um, last year, I was, you know, because again, my whole career is in global health, I was just so pleased for the first time virtually ever that people were interested in anything else apart from, you know, beyond our borders and the health of people beyond our borders. And I found that just such a, um, important aspect um, to, you know, to, 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 for us as Australians to understand what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, however, this year and with 2021 and particularly now, our little microcosm has narrowed down again. I think we've become very narrowed vision um, and we can't look out to see, you know, everybody else is doing this. You know, it's okay. You know, we, we I know we have to be brave and, and it's anxious and we feel stressed and anxious about it, but other people are doing this too and 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 we, we we're doing this carefully and measured and things so I think in that regard the other thing um, that I have found also very disappointing is that we know as in all infectious diseases it's it's a disease by and large of inequity we we've known that it is very visible you know last year where were all outbreaks it was in the in, in Victoria it was in the LGAs that are in the same this year. And it's been, you know, we had a vaccine this year. And so it's so disappointing to see that our coverage in those areas was so low. You know, and, and Victoria, which is the number one hotspot of, of COVID in, in Australia, had the second lowest coverage for our Indigenous population. 
And, and, and so, and then the Northern Territory, I just saw a, a YouTube video of the Nor- Northern Territory um, Health Minister almost in tears saying how there's so much misinformation for the Indigenous communities and that's why they're not getting vaccinated. You know, mm-hmm. the communications plan has been so poor and, and the amount of effort if getting off up on a dais is the is is the way to inform what's going on, then it's a gross failure. So we have not been able to engage with our diverse community and the inequity within that community. We know where the infections occur, and that's where all the resources have to go to, and it hasn't happened. And and so I found I find that very disappointing that we haven't learned from that. And even though it's shone a blazing spotlight on this, it's been ignored. Adam, I think we have a very good question for you here, which is for those that are still feeling hopeless, anxious, and unsure about the future, what uh, would you say to them? Well, look, I mean, I just echo what we've said over and over again. It's uh, entirely normal to feel anxious in the current circumstances. Um, you know, never in the entire time that I've been a clinical psychologist have I said, you don't need to worry about that. And they've gone, thank you very much, I'm out of here. Um, We need to understand what they're anxious about and then to put strategies in place to deal with the things that give them concern and also to give them control and also for kids and for families. So, you know, I think there's no point dismissing the fear, but there is a point to start thinking about what are the strategies that give you hope, give, give your family strategies to um, succeed in the future? And, and, and if you, you, you can't develop those, look to others for support. Just to go back to Fiona's comments, um, I do have some hope. There's been a lot of talk about community and there's been a lot of talk about looking after each other. And I really hope that rhetoric it isn't just rhetoric long term, that actually as a community, we, we take the lessons. We've never had a pandemic like this uh, while I've been alive, our society has been challenged in a way like it's never been challenged like this that I've been aware of. Um, and so there are lots of learnings we can take from this. And one of one of those things is that we do need to come together as a community to have the support services that look after each other in place so that if this does happen again, we can buffer those negative effects. We know that communities and countries that have very good support services, whether it's health services, mental health services, they experience much lower rates of mental health problems than communities that did not. We can take we can take from that and make sure those services are in place more effectively in the future. Thank you to our speakers, Catherine Bennett, Fiona Rosso, and Adam Gostello for joining us tonight and sharing your insights. Uh, my name is Lara Ferraciola. It's been a pleasure to moderate tonight's conversation. Before we say goodbye, let me hand over to Professor Tim Sopomassan, the Director of Culture Strategy at the University of Sydney and Professor of Practice, both in Sociology and Political Theory within the School of Social and Political Sciences for final words. Over to you, Tim. Thank you, Luara. And what a conversation we've had this evening. And I want to begin by thanking Luara for guiding the conversation so uh, so deftly and so wonderfully, and to our amazing all-star cast of speakers, to Nick, Mark, Catherine, Fiona, Adam, a, a big thank you. And thank you to all of you in the audience tonight as well, both on Zoom and also on LinkedIn for the questions that you've sent through. We've covered so much ground tonight, including the politics of COVID, the politics 
of science, human rights, mental health, the well-being of children, I can go on. Um, and there were so many important insights, but a few really struck me as I was listening to the contributions. Uh, one is that it's very clear that the world we are in right now in 2021 is a very different one to the one that we were in during 2020. And we're obviously in a transition from being in a COVID zero world in Australia to having to live with COVID and the pandemic will become, as some of our speakers have said, uh, really a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Also really clear too that the polarisation we've had in our public debate the past 18 months may have prevented us from learning some of the right lessons from experiences overseas. It's important that we do reflect on what other countries have got right. And finally, while it's understandable there is fear and anxiety out in the community at the moment, we've got to move to a mindset of hope and control and neutralise the virus. Well, uh, this conversation tonight, uh, friends, has been uh, an extension of some of the work that we've done on the Open Society Common Purpose Task Force. And we set ourselves on that task force a number of tasks, one of which was to create a psychological runway for Australia to reopen our society and re-engage with the world, to have a more proportionate public conversation about COVID and its risks and burdens, and also to broaden public understanding of the issue to ensure that we appreciate this is not just a public health crisis, but presents a broader societal challenge to our community. No, make no mistake, there's an enormous task for us to rebuild right now, and it will require a great deal of hope, ambition, guided by science and by us balancing the risks. But I hope that you get from the event tonight, uh, from our speakers, a model of how this can be done. So once again, um, thank you to Luara and to our speakers. And on behalf of all of our panellists in Sydney Ideas, thank you to you for joining us. And we hope to see you again at the University of Sydney for another conversation with Sydney Ideas. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.